Hello, welcome to another Book Shambles Author Extra. This is the first uh, of a few episodes we recorded backstage at Barfest in London uh, back in, I want to say February, might have been March. It's, it's one of those two anyway. It could have even been late January. Who's to say? The internet. You could look it up if the actual date of the recording of this episode matters to you that much. Uh, but a quick admin off the top. Obviously, we have our shows at Royal Albert Hall on June 15, Space Shambles, and then June 4 and June 11, Book Shambles Live. Tickets available at Royal Albert Hall. Uh, website royalalberthall.com uh, we've got another live book shambles event on May 4 at King's Place in London that is Robin with uh, Dean Burnett for the London launch of his new book The Happy Brain follow up to The Idiot Brain and don't forget you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash book shambles where you can get uh, extended episodes bonus episodes behind the scenes stuff book bags shirts uh, we've got our first book club coming up as well uh, all sorts of stuff there patreon.com slash book shambles uh, $1 an episode as little as that so thank you very much for your support there or thank you very much for your hopefully upcoming support or you can just give us five stars on iTunes if you want as well that really helps us out so on to this week's episode or this week's book shambles author extra this is Robin chatting to uh, uh, Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris. The, um, this is, uh, yeah, it's, actually there's a lot of quite grotesque history about North. If, if you, I would highly recommend <laughs> really? uh, okay. the book Jerusalem. Do you know about Jerusalem? No, I don't. It's, it's uh, slightly longer than the Old Testament and Alan Moore <laughs> finished it, uh, it came out, what, about, it's about a year and a half ago, so he finished it about two and a half yeah, years yeah. ago. And uh, it's an incredibly, uh, it, it's looking just at one part of Northampton, but it's throughout history. It's this kind of block universe. Oh, that's interesting. And, yeah. uh, and because it was nearly our capital city, oh. it was Northampton versus London. Why um, is that? Gosh, the things I learned. Now, uh, yeah, Lindsay Fitzharris, you have written one of the most uh, gory and pus-filled <laughs> uh, books that I've read for some time. It is and I was true. just saying, you have a quote on the back from Henry Marsh, uh, I do, yes. who is, and that book is hard. Do no harm. I presume you've read. Oh yeah, and he's he's brilliant, and, and he doesn't. I'm told he doesn't blurb that often, but he seemed to enjoy the book, which is a wonderful, wonderful praise and endorsement from him. Yeah, I've not seen his. I mean, it's. Uh, oh, on, on loads of books, and it's um, but that that is, I mean, I could see the connection because when you read a book like Do No Harm, as he is explaining what he's having to do as he goes into a skull and the right, the, yeah. the the network of 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 cells that he has to work around, it's a very visceral book. Yes, yeah. And I know people who haven't got all the way through it. There are some people that, that the level of suspense. That's funny. I just I'm not. I don't get that queasy with words but if I was if I had to witness it because I'm a medical historian so I can't I can't save people's lives or anything um but if I had to go in and witness an operation or a post-mortem I think that would be different the smells which I really try to describe in the butchering art too um should we should we get into it you want me to talk about that yeah so um my book is about this guy Joseph Lister in the 19th century and one of the things I really kind of delighted in doing was talking about what it was like to go into the dead house which was the dissection room at the time and if you just think about these bodies were in advanced states of decomposition they weren't like the bodies that we dissect today um and it was very dangerous it was before uh antibiotics before mass vaccination so a lot of medical students died even just going into the profession so it's a really really different experience well you've got somewhere that i i know i noted down 
down the uh, Rousseau's quote of uh, uh, what a terrible sight an anatomy theatre is stinking corpses, livid running flesh, blood, repellent intestines, horrible skeletons, and a word I, I've not known before pestilential vapors. <laughs> yes. Pestilential, that's I know, a great it's amazing. Word. In fact, sometimes people have, have criticized the book for being a little over the board with descriptions, but I always remind people that actually most of the most gruesome descriptions come from contemporaries themselves. They're not my words. These are how people are describing their experiences. And it would have been awful, you know, pre, pre-anesthetic, pre-antiseptic. It would have been grimy and dirty. It would have been painful. Um, and I think if you're going to pick up a book called The Butchering Art, you know, you should be prepared for that. Well, I also think it's very fair in the fact that, because um, I had to read, I, I read it in one sitting, and uh, for the first, say, 70 or 80 pages, there is a lot of, of that. As you see, you know, the hospital stink of shit, mm. piss and vomit. and <laughs> yeah. this. But that's the whole point of the book. You know, the, the story point. you're yeah. telling yeah. is then there was a man and other people working ar- uh, around yes. him. Yeah. And that changed. And it was it, it's really that sort of before and after shot. I think if anybody thinks about the history of surgery, which they may not ever have thought about that, but if they do, they tend to think of the dawn of anesthesia as the moment everything changes. And so my book actually opens with the first ever operation under ether in 1846, um, done by a man named Robert Liston. And it is that pivotal moment. We've conquered pain. But actually because surgeons don't understand that germs exist surgery becomes much more dangerous at that point because they're willing to pick up the knife um, they're willing to go deeper in the body and as a result these operations become slow moving executions for the patients um, so it starts with that moment and what I loved about that that was in 1846 in December Robert Liston performs the first operation with ether and in the audience that day was a 17 year old Joseph Lister and if I was going to write the movie script it couldn't have been better than that so I thought this is the story um, but originally, I wanted to actually write the book about Liston, um, this this guy who did the operation um, with Ether, because he was such a character. He was sort of the last butcher. And he was 6'2". He was incredibly tall for the Victorian period. And he was known as the, fat, the fastest knife in the West End. He could hold you down with his left arm, and he could take off your leg in under 30 seconds. And one of my favorite stories about him is that when he would um, perform these operations, he would switch knives and hold them in his mouth. So he'd be holding these bloody instruments in his mouth which was really awful and um, he was moving so fast he accidentally took off his assistant's finger the patient died of post-operative infection the assistant died of infection and as he was switching knives he slashed the coat of a spectator who apparently died of fright and so it's jokingly referred to as the only operation in history with a 300% mortality rate so he's a great character and he appears throughout but he doesn't really bridge that transformative moment for me and, and that's why ultimately I wrote about Joseph Lister well that is I mean what is remarkable about it is that the pitch you draw not merely of 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 the smell not merely the fact that one of the worst places to go in fact the worst place to go if you're ill is is the hospital basically yes yeah you even talk about the fact that the surgeons were paid less than (laughs) the person who made sure that there weren't lice yeah you know the person who got and that is a I think something that I'd, I'd really not realised that they were they were not considered to be anything as you said they're butchers they are they, these people yeah. they hack away and yeah exactly I mean surgeons today are, are really seen as the top of the hierarchy in the medical field they're the gods of medicine um, but in the past they were really like like craftsmen um, they weren't necessarily uni- university educated some of, sometimes they were even illiterate um, and they were really just meant to hack off a limb when it needed to be hacked off or pull teeth or whatever it was. 
does. Um, so very different to how we view surgeons today. And a lot of that, again, goes to Joseph Lister because it's sort of, he, he ushers in the birth of uh, scientific surgery, as it were. Is there a change as well in the 19th century in terms of how people felt about other human beings i mean what 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 it does mm. seem that that lister uh, born into the quaker faith that that had a very important uh his attitude uh, in some ways it almost made me think as well about things like you know darwin and and the unitarian faith that yeah, both yeah. of which seem to have an attitude towards human beings yes yeah which which is Mm. more humane which yeah i think lister's quakerism certainly made him more humane towards his patients it's hard to know though because we only have generally we only have records from the surgeons themselves the patient voices are relatively lost a lot of people coming into hospitals were very poor because if you were wealthy or middle class you were treated at home um so we don't have a, a ton of information about what these patients felt how they were necessarily treated besides the medical treatments they were receiving but we have a lot of insight into lister and he and as you say he was very compassionate and i think um, I think he probably was unusual in that sense. But although, you know, there's these stories of other surgeons hacking off limbs in under 30 seconds, I always like to remind people that these surgeons lived and died with their patients as well. They were risking their lives because they were exposing themselves to diseases. And they knew that to some extent because a lot of people in their profession died. And also how frustrating would it have been to constantly go into that operating theater, do the same thing over and over again and get the same result. Your patient is dying. Your patient is dying. When Lister comes around, I always like to say that the butchering art is a love story between science and medicine because it's the first time that a scientific principle is applied to medical practice. So Lister takes uh, Louis Pasteur's germ theory he applies it to medicine through the development of antisepsis. And it was very hard for surgeons to believe in germs. Um, and that's hard for us in the 21st century to understand why it was hard for them. Um, and I and I like to, you know, remind people that this was a, Joseph Lister was very young when he came out with this. So this young guy comes in and tells you that there's these invisible little creatures and they're killing your patients. I can see them with this strange instrument called a microscope. Believe me. And the other part of that was that he was telling these older surgeons that they had been unknowingly killing their patients all along. And I think that was a hard pill for a lot of the people in the medical profession to swallow well that's i mean i mean you <coughs> excuse me but you you, you also you, you talk a little bit about uh semmelweis as well whose yes, life yes. ends tragically yes yeah. and this is instinctually now as you just said it seems remarkable that there were surgeons their hands caked in the black blood of <laughs> yeah. diseased people who are then going to uh deal with a woman yep. giving birth and then the fact it, it it's a remarkable thing to me that there was no ability to make the the connection that leap, between you know. the filth and the fact that that might be leading to yeah disease. it's true and, and it's funny you bring up Semmelweis because I've been going on tour with this book and there is all these Semmelweis groupies people people get really worked up thinking I don't mention him in the book and you know they call me out um, he's in the book he's in the book um, but the the difference is for people who aren't familiar Semmelweis was this Austrian surgeon and he was putting together this idea that if you wash your hands that infection rates would go down in the hospital wards and he was ridiculed by his colleagues as you say they called him the hand washer and he ended up dying in an insane asylum. The difference between him and Lister, though, is that there were people like Semmelweis or Florence Nightingale who were putting this idea of hygiene um, forward, but they didn't 
they weren't putting together what the agent through which disease was spread. So unless you understand that it's germs, it's very difficult to get behind the idea of hygiene, ultimately. Um, and, and actually, Florence Nightingale thinks that Lister is hysterical about his belief in germs at first. So these two people in history that you think would be working, because they're working towards a similar goal, actually were at odds about the cause behind disease. So that was really Lister's fight, and that's his ultimate accomplishment. Um, there were people washing their hands or doing basic hygiene. There were even people using antisepsis to some extent, but not in a methodological way that Lister was doing it. Germs exist. We have to do X, Y, Z as a way of preventing disease. And so that was really his contribution. But this, it, it feels in the book that that, that idea of, you know, paradigm shifts basically occur when the previous generation yeah. die. And this appears to be true here as well, which is yeah. the battle. Yeah. You know, the, 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 there are letters being sent to the Lancet, which are kind yeah. of dismissing Lister and, and seem to be... Yeah, the Lancet was like a burn book in the 19th century. It was a way of really outing your colleagues. And I've said that on Twitter, and some people say today that it still is kind of used in that way. So um, things don't change. But, but Lister was hugely criticized. Um, and, and I think, you know, people say, well, what's the take home from the book? I, this book is narrative nonfiction. It, it reads like a novel. It should be enjoyed as, you know, as, as a form of entertainment. But also, I hope that when people read the book, they realize that sometimes criticism, our strongest criticism or pushback comes from within the medical and scientific communities, not from without. And we have to keep an open mind. And also, you know, again, it's easy to look back at these these practices and, and almost scoff or laugh at it. But what will people say about us in 50 years or 100 years? I'm sure there are things that I'm doing right now, you know, that, that will be seen as positively dangerous and uh, strange to people in the future. So what got you into, uh, do, you, do you remember that first moment where this world became enticing? When did I get gross and morbid? And well, yeah, it has to be, you know, to, to be interested in these things, sometimes it may well be a horror movie or it might have been one of the movies yep, about birds yep. and hair. That, that moment where you suddenly go, yeah, this is kind of... That's my thing, crazy, that's my thing, yeah. Um, well, I was always a strange child, unsurprisingly. I used to, uh, I, I said, I joke that I used to drag my grandmother from cemetery to cemetery hunting ghosts. We love to go to cemeteries. And I think people thought I was always obsessed with death, but um, I, I actually, I think it was more an obsession with the past and the people that lived in it. And so I went on, I did all my degrees at Oxford um, in medical history. And I, I think the reason why people respond to medical history is because we've all been sick. We know what that's like. Um, and if you think about it, what was it like then in the 19th century before anesthetics or before germ theory? And, and so it kind of brings people into that world. It's a, it's a familiar world, but it's completely alien at the same time. Um, but I've always been a little bit strange <laughs> and, and I love it. I mean, people ask me, I, I remind them that the operating theaters in, in this Victorian period, they were filled to the rafters with ticketed spectators. People would actually pay to come see this. And people say, well, were the Victorians particularly morbid? Well, there's 132,000 people who follow me on Instagram and they come to see the morbid pictures that I put up about the past. So I think we have a very healthy, morbid curiosity today.
And there does seem to be, there was the book The Sick Rose. Uh, that's right, yes. And then there was, I forget, The Cruel... Uh, a crucial Intervention, yeah, intervention. that's right. I, yeah. I always read it as Cruel Intervention. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, and those images, I, I mean, you talk about something that I've not heard of before, for instance, the No-Nose Club. Yes, the No-Nose Club. So syphilis was so rife in the 19th century that, you know, in the final stages of syphilis, your nose fell off. There was all kinds of horrible signs. Um, and there was a club that sprung up in London where people would get together and celebrate the fact that their noses had fallen off and their life was going to end. Um, but, it, you know, you can see how devastating these diseases were that we can now cure quite easily um, through amazing collections like the Welcome Collection in London, uh, the Royal College of Surgeons, the Hunterian Collection. There's there's fantastic specimens in these, these collections. Um, and we forget how easy it was to die in the past and and how cheap life could really be you know if you just got a cut and it got infected you could die um if i had lived in the past i would have died very early on because i was a very sick child i had pneumonia a lot and you know if we didn't have antibiotics i would have died very early so i think we're very lucky to live today but someone asked me once um is this the best time to live and i said well surely that's always going to be true right so in 50 years that will be the best time to live and and so forth and so on because we're constantly progressing with our medical knowledge well, there's that bit in, uh, in Carl Sagan's Demon Haunted World mm. where he talks about uh, sitting at a dinner party and they start talking about who of them would have survived yeah. to adulthood. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's why I was talking to school the other day and just showing that as the children sat there, I went, none of you have made it. I, said, I, haven't, I haven't picked you specifically for any reason, but yeah. you're all gone. Yeah, it would have. I mean, we, we associate death with old age now, but death was very much associated with younger age. Um, and, and there's this sort of uh, misconception that in the 19th century, the, the average lifespan was 35. That's not actually true. That takes into account the enormous high mortality rates in childhood. But if you got past childhood, which was very dangerous, you know, you were likely to live to a good age. Um, but all those vaccinations, antibiotics, all those things that happened in the 20th century that help us live longer, um, is, is, it's just incredible when you think about it in such a short period of time. Well, that's, I think this book is one, one of the things that's very useful about it. I, I was reading the other day that, for instance, in 18th century Sweden, uh, every third child uh, died before the age of five. Yep. In 19th century Germany, it's every second child. Wow, yeah. And I do wonder, when you talk about the fact that hopefully every 50 years is better, Yes. Sometimes yeah. I wonder. There was a, it's a story I've mentioned on this podcast before, but a friend of mine who, when his uncle was dying, his uncle was in his seventies. He was born in nineteen thirty-eight, and he, as he was dying, he said, "Do you know what I'm worried about? I'm worried I might have lived at the best time." He said, "I'm worried that this was a time oh, yeah. where he did, he was young enough that he never had to fight in a war. Mm. He was going through the progress of the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, etc., and then he started to see that, and that perhaps because." We are one of the few generations. You even talk to people in, the, in their mm. 70s or 80s who, who were brought up in, in, in slum areas, and they will say yeah. how used to the fact that, oh, Tommy isn't here today because he's died. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, this book reminds us that it's, it only takes a, a short a sp- line of our family to get back to... It's, yeah, it's true. I, I think it would be false to say that we're constantly progressing forward. I mean, if you look at the 18th century versus the 19th century when we began to industrialize, our diets get worse, you know. So so there's things that affect mortality rates that will, you know, it goes up and down, so to speak. And I think I read something that um, new generations now have a lower life ex- expectancy than previous generations because of the rise of diabetes and all those kinds of diseases that are now um, taking us down. So it is, it is interesting to see that kind of 
you know, it would be, I think it would be wrong to say that we're progressing constantly, but I think medical technology in general, we're, we're learning more about the body. We're trying to cure some of the major diseases and we're making advancements, which is incredible. Well, that's why I think, you know, books like this and uh, books also, you know, sometimes books about things like the Holocaust as well, is when people mm. start to go, oh, it's such a bad day on Twitter, what's wrong with human <laughs> yeah, beings? Yeah, I know. And you go, let yeah. me show you what human beings were, were, were yeah, up Yeah, you, did, you didn't have a 45-pound scrotal tumor removed in under four minutes without anesthetic. That guy's in the book as well, oh, so, yeah, you know. Yeah. There's, a, there's a few, uh, there's, a few. And, and there's the sailor, of course, who loses his penis. Oh, and, yeah, that's, uh, that, that's, that, that, that's, that's kind of you know, well. when I give these book talks, I've had um, three or four people faint during my book talks, because um, I have a lot of images. And I, I did a book trailer with my friend um, who's a filmmaker, and you can find it on my YouTube channel um, called Under the Knife. And we did, we did a recreation of a pre-anesthetic operation. And I show this at the book talks, and people, men, <laughs> tend to faint. We don't actually show the leg coming off, but I think it's the suggestion that it's coming off and the guy on the table screaming. And, um, and we had a lot of fun. And now I'm, I'm heading to L.A. in two weeks to talk about the film adaptation of this book. So maybe the horror will continue to spread around and... And we'll be bringing this uh, to to a wider audience. The men fainting is an interesting thing. Jim Jim Rose, do you remember the Jim Rose Circus sideshow? You might, you might no. not have been. Uh, it was really something. It, it, it kept going into the nineties, and it was uh, it, he did this circus sideshow of kind of people who had made themselves into freaks. So it was people who were heavily pierced, people okay, who okay. do some of the most macabre sword swallowing. Yeah. And uh, Jim Rose would eat bits of glass and do all that kind of stuff. And uh, and he said he said it's always the men in the audience that faint. He said and the reason I is bet, yeah. because women are smart enough to go. I'm not watching I'm that. Not gonna, I know, yeah. I know the guy the first guy who fainted um at the old operating theater, I was showing the trailer and he fainted and then they got him up and he looked at the screen again and he fainted again. So it was it was a double humiliation in that sense. But uh but yeah, the the sword swallowing, there's no trick to that either. It's they're really swallowing the sword, which is amazing. It, actually, I think the Welcome has a wax uh, anatomical model that shows so they've opened it up and it shows the sword going through. So how anatomically you'd have to learn how to swallow the sword. But that stuff is amazing. Not UV many people light, doing that anymore. UV light one. No. I've seen a guy, I think the first time I saw it was a, a guy whose stage name was The Bastard Son of Tommy Cooper. And he used to, and he would basically take, so he's swallowing a oh. light. So, of course, as it goes down, it's also oh, illuminating. That's wild. From the, yeah. Oh, that's you crazy. Loved Jim Rose oh, I would have, uh, yeah. Um, the, uh, the oh, sorry, I've just got another lovely page. <laughs> it, its abdomen hacked away by the knives of eager students who had afterwards carelessly tossed the decomposing organs back into the gory cavity. You enjoy making people. I like it. Well. I, I like it. I like I said, you can't you can't pick up this book without you know expecting those descriptions and and I also think I'd be doing a disservice to the people in the past if I wasn't really trying to describe what it was actually like to you know be in that be in that time experience that um, what was it like to be strapped to an operating table and know that you're going to have a bladder stone removed for instance there's a guy named Stephen Pollard in the 1820 it's horrible I know that's the one that's the one that was uh, I'm trying to remember who did that the, the, the operation uh, uh, Astley Cooper yeah and it and it went 
horribly, horribly wrong. Or sorry, it wasn't Ashley Cooper. It was his nephew. Um, and what happened was it should have taken five minutes, ended up taking over an hour as the surgeon yelled at the patient for having abnormal anatomy. I mean, imagine you're, you're, uh, you're, you're struggling against the knife. It's embarrassing to have this thing removed. And you're being blamed for the fact that the surgeon's completely inept. And he does die 24 hours later of post-operative infection. But there's all kinds of stories. There's another guy, um, to go back to Robert Liston, the 6'2 giant, um, there's this guy that uh, comes to the table to get a bladder stone removed as well, but he decides quite logically he's not going to go through with it, so he jumps off the table, he runs across the room, locks himself in a closet, and Liston, all 6'2", hot on his heels, chases after him, rips the door off, and brings him back to the table and removes the stone. So it was it was a wild period, um, and when you consider how we operate today, it was very, very different. Speed was most important. Well, you have an interesting story involving Lister, which is, that, I mean, it's obviously lots, but, but in terms of, there's a woman called Julia Sullivan who yes, was yeah. stabbed by her, her uh, husband, husband yeah. and then has a moment where even though it's a small wound, she starts noticing her intestines. Are, are, are yeah, they all start spilling out. And, um, and Lister's a, a newly minted surgeon in London at this time, and this woman is rushed through the hospital, and he does something very unusual. He sutures the gut. Um, and why that's dangerous is because, again, they don't understand that germs exist, but he has this inkling um, that this is going to work, and it does. And he saves her life and, incidentally, saves the husband's life because he's not executed for murder. Um, but you get all kinds of stories. I, I did a interview um, for NPR over in the U.S., and it was pre-recorded because they knew not to trust me on live radio. And I told this story, and you might cut this story. Uh, you might decide oh, it's too much for your listeners. Yeah, but but they said, oh, it's it's interesting, but we have to cut it. Um, there's a guy named John Erickson. He's a, one of Lister's um, instructors. And this woman comes in, and you might remember this from the book, and she's asphyxiating on all this blood and pus in her neck. And he cuts into her trachea. It all begins spilling out. And he decides he's going to lower his mouth right onto this wound and suck all of this out. And she lives, which is incredible. I mean, actually, Actually, for the purposes of my story, it would have been better if she had died, he had died, everybody had died, um, because it. But it really does show how different things were and how people just did not understand how disease was spread. Yeah, that was the story where uh, I was just talking to someone who works in parasitology. So she went, "Oh, I had no problem with the book at all." Uh, I said, "Not even the bit where the guy's sucking <laughs> out the pus and blood from a gaping neck wound, because I think he just instinctually everybody should be know, a, little a little bit, bit yeah." Crazy on that. One of the things that just uh, before we finish, there's, uh, it, I mean, it's got oh, this fascinating stuff about Harvey Leach, the the, the, mm. the gnome fly, but um, is you the, love the carnival stuff? You love that? Yeah, you no, love the I've carnival? Yeah. Been, I, was, I was brought up on those books, research stuff, yeah, from the 1980s yeah, and the modern primitives and all that. The um, Contagionists and anti-contagionists. So I just wanted to. Oh, you got to hit the really, the really complex stuff. Yeah, so this, this we got past the, the scrotal tumors. Now we got to get into we the. the yeah, and now here comes the lecture, everybody. Um, so basically, the the idea was that disease was spread of two different ways, but but there's a lot of complexity and nuance to all of this too. But the prevailing idea was miasma theory, which is the idea that bad odors caused. Um, disease. So in the 17th century, you get these long beaked masks, for instance, um, that people, doctors wore to protect themselves against the plague because they thought the bad odors of the plague would um, would cause the disease. So what they did was they stuffed sweet smelling herbs at the bottom of this beak and that would protect them. Um, so there's that. And then there's the contagionist theory, which 
it has elements that ring true to how we think disease is spread. So for instance, um, clothing or it, direct contact could spread disease. But neither of those explanations really were perfect until you came up with the idea that germs spread diseases. So there's this sort of battle between those two philosophies and then Lister coming along with the germ theory, which was championed by uh, Louis Pasteur, of course, first. Uh, it's a it's a brilliant book, and it's thank uh, you. There's some lovely, uh, yeah, some of the turns of phrase. I've, again, I've got I've got a <laughs> lot of uh, um, miasmic paradigm as we were onto the miasma, and uh, and it's also nice to know that Lister, even in the mid 19th century, was still having a little attack at homeopathy. Oh yeah, so, he uh, was, he hated that, and and also I like to uh, tell people if you don't know who Joseph Lister is, which is more unusual in this country, but if you don't, but he sounds familiar, it's because of the product Listerine, which was named for him, but not by him. Um, there was an American who was inspired by Lister to create this product, and it wasn't actually a mouthwash. It was more traditionally used to treat gonorrhea. So I like to give that little life hack to people out there listening. Just throw just throw some Listerine on it. It'll be fine. You may well have affected Listerine sales very negatively. <laughs> yeah, I know. Maybe, but maybe they'll go up. Who knows? Well, there's know? an interesting story behind that as well isn't there when, when basically halitosis was invented yes that's right they created that term didn't they well they're getting it now because yeah. i'm telling the true story of listerine yeah, we've run out of ways of selling it the yeah 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 um the butchering art is currently out in hardback uh, is it coming out in paperback it soon? is in october in october but uh buy it in hardback so yes uh, and it will be out in paperback in october thank you thank you so much this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. 